welcome back to another episode of Debatable with your hosts Nina and Kyle. I'm Nina. I'm Kyle, and today we're joined with Nori. For those who don't know you, how would you like to introduce yourself today? Well, my name is Nori. I guess uh, for the people who are uh, viewing your podcast, probably they might know me in the debating community because I debate as well. Um, but aside from that, I guess they could also know me as um, a mental health advocate since I'm also a person living with a mental health condition. I currently am diagnosed with bipolar disorder. And apart from that, I also have my advocacies with persons with disabilities since I currently work as a speech-language pathologist. Um, and also, I am an uh, advocate for LGBT. TQIA rights since I'm also part of the community as a bisexual. Today we're going to be talking about the intersectionality between all of your advocacies. What is the importance of looking at that intersectionality, you know, between mental health as connected to um, LGBT experiences? I think that not a lot of people immediately see that majority of the people within the LGBTQIA community actually experience more mental health struggles as opposed to those heterosexual individuals. And it's probably because we're seen as a, a loving and very light-hearted community. Most of the time, you, you see majority of like LGBT communities in like bars, singing, um, entertaining people, in comedy bars as drag queens, etc. Or even like in your close a circle of friends most often than not the funny person is the, the person part of the lgbt spectrum so I think that it's sometimes difficult for us to really see that most of these individuals are actually going through a lot, um, given that they also wear a mask most of the time. Um, based on our old conversation, you did mention that a lot of people that are part of the LGBT community face certain mental distress that often go unnoticed. Would you say that the mental distress faced is nuanced to what the LGBT members experience? Um, I think so in a certain way it is because a lot of LGBT individuals was uh, when they're not yet out of the closet because of a lot of social stigma, they also tend to hide a lot of their mental health struggles within themselves as well because they're afraid to say that the reason why they are struggling with mental health is because they're not heterosexual or they're part of the LGBT spectrum. So I think that it's also very difficult for us to early diagnose these patients with mental health difficulties because a lot of the roots of their mental health condition is based off of the fact that they're part of the community and they're afraid that their parents might know about it since probably they're still young they would need the money of their parents to like go to a psychiatrist or, or something like that so I think that they're also afraid of that part as well as well as also they're afraid of the doctor's judgments towards them Um, since we are also in a very conservative community wherein a lot of our psychiatrists and psychologists still use uh, like neolithic uh, neolithic practices such as using Christianity or using religion as a form of therapeutic tool so yeah I actually wanted to ask a question about mental illness in general because you mentioned that a lot of their mental distress comes from the fact that they are um, not heterosexual I wanted to ask you, like, is that, does that mean that mental illness is caused by extrinsic or external factors? Because I remember um, a few years ago, it was election season, and someone said that the reason why a lot of people are mentally ill is because of economic reasons, like economic conditions, like they're too poor to afford like good education, those kinds of things. But there was a lot of backlash from mental health advocates 
from the other party who are saying that it's not just about that. It's also like a medical condition. So what what is your opinion on this? Is it something that is more an intrinsic condition or is it caused by external factors? Actually, the scientific community is um, currently researching a lot on that. But um, for majority of the cases in mental health disorders, such as, let's say, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, OCD, anxiety, majority of these things are really half and half. Like some parts are genetic, some parts are based on environmental and extrinsic factors. But I think generally when it comes to the idea of depression, when it comes to suicide, when it comes to the very visceral harms that people face because of mental health disorder, I think that it is really majority caused by extrinsic factors, right? Because even if you're not facing depression, when you are currently discriminated upon and when you're currently turned down by society, I think that it pushes you to do things that you're not comfortable to do, despite you not being uh, like medically diagnosed with a mental health disorder. So I guess the question now is, what is the conversation on mental health like within the LGBT community? Because I guess our perspective is rather limited since we are surrounded by debaters that more or less have a very progressive view on mental health. But within the LGBT community, what are the conversations like and are they sufficient in targeting the problems you mentioned? I think that in terms of creating safe spaces and like support groups, I think there are multiple um, avenues where LGBTQIA individuals can seek help. But I think that the culture within the community itself is also something that's particularly harmful that, you know, also stigmatizes a lot of people or also hurts a lot of people. So um, I think one of the toxic things in the community is that we also discriminate upon individuals within our own community like discriminate upon body types discriminate upon like gender expression whether you're effeminate or you're more masculine so i think that those particular things are what actually um makes it more difficult for us to solve the problems of mental health despite the fact that we have safe spaces for people but i think that also even within the philippines there isn't much highlight on mental health when it comes to lgbt individuals in that there is much more highlight in terms of more i say um bigger harm that people see immediately. Like, it's difficult for you to see immediately mental health in terms of you can't read people's minds. But when it comes to, like, HIV and AIDS, it's something that can be seen immediately when you have all these reports from the doctors that HIV, AIDS is rising in the Philippines. So I think that there's also a lot of budget um, for the LGBTQIA community that's put towards, like, HIV, AIDS advocacy. But I do believe that these two things, um, these two big problems are actually inextricably linked with one another, um, like mental health and HIV, AIDS. So I think that there should be priority as well to H, uh, to mental health disorder given that there is a high link with within these two big big issues i i wanted to ask i want to ask now are there like additional nuances or are are the nuances different when it comes to different facets of the lgbt community like for example i recently read something about the bisexual burden um where it's like they, they are seen as more promiscuous etc or less likely to be able to um like be in a monogamous relationship so the paper that i read described that as a bisexual burden that is higher compared to other parts of the lgbt um do bisexuals actually face different sorts of mental struggles compared to gays or lesbians or transsexuals or is it just an umbrella where if you are not cis or straight you face similar mental health concerns and sources of mental distress i think that um there are specific nuances to each community and um based on the researches that i've read actually when it comes to mental health disorder and suicide rates um bisexuals and transgender are one of the highest in terms of statistics and i would say that it is true that to a certain 
extent, bisexuals do tend to become more hypersexual or tend to not be part of a monogamous relationship. Also, like based on researches, but I think that also in my own personal struggle, I do believe that I face a lot of those things. Um, currently, like right now, I'm um, polyamorous and I am in a polyamorous relationship. So I really don't. I I really do see that there is a link based on my personal life, but I can't really overly generalize it to say that all bisexuals are like this. But I think that there are nuances in terms of there are a lot of societal pressures for bisexual individuals to conform to heteronormativity. I personally ex- experienced that when I asked my um, psychologist and like my thesis advisor back in college, wherein I faced a lot of mental health difficulties because I was um, abused physically in my relationship as well as um, I was in a very tumultuous relationship. So um, upon seeking advice from my psychologist, my psychologist said, "Why don't you just opt to be in a heterosexual?" relationship since you're bisexual it's the healthier way and it's the most christian way <laughs> since i won't be making a sin and, and all of those things so i think that when it comes to bisexuals work, there is also a lot of pressure for us to conform to normal standards because we can to a certain extent and religion is kind of like a big pressure for us to conform even when we don't want to conform as Yeah, so I think it's very evident that in countries like ours, there seems to be external factors that limit the expression that LGBT members can can do. Um, you also mentioned earlier that there are factors within the LGBT community that cause mental distress, like pressures that LGBT members place upon each other. I wanted to ask a little bit more about it, especially since there are a lot of debates even within our own community, um, the debate community about. For example, an obligation to come out, or about gay tribes pressuring someone to stay within the tribe, or bisexual women having to date someone of the same sex, as you mentioned, was a struggle you faced as well. I wanted to ask what your opinions on these things are. For example, like are these things personal choices, or do you think the movement should take a definitive stance on certain parts of these things? I do think right now, with the given environment that we have, wherein we don't have mental health support for individuals, wherein there is a lot of social stigma about being LGBT, I think that it is a personal choice for you to come out, and that's why I've been advocating for mental health support groups for people who are afraid to come out, so that they're given the proper guidance in terms of how to come out, um, and also when to come out, or are they comfortable coming out? So I think that um, right now, given the current environment of the Philippines, or also in a lot of conservative. States where we don't have support for LGBTQI individuals, I do believe that it's a personal choice for you to come out, given that there are dangers for you when you you come out. But I believe that in a society, probably in more liberal societies, where we're able to advocate much more aggressively for for um, LGBTQIA mental health rights and discrimination rights, I feel like um, there is a certain obligation to come out, given that there is nothing wrong about being LGBT. And I think that in a very liberal society, wherein some people do not come out and just become conservative. They're damaging probably the perception of people when it other people who haven't come out yet in terms of is it really a bad thing to come out as an LGBT individual when actually it's not. So I think that you know it, it, there there are differences, there are right opportunities and right instances for us to come out. But I think generally in in the current environment we're in, it's hard to come out. Um, in terms of the second one, in terms of the tribes, I do believe that there is 
um, a difference between like preferences and discrimination. Discrimination. So I feel like um, in a lot of um, gay dating apps or in a lot of LGBT dating apps, it just doesn't come off as preferences to some people. It comes off as like discrimination. Na may mga X mark to like effeminate or X mark to, like um, chubby guys, etc. So um, it's okay for you to have preferences and state them out that I, I have preferences. Uh, I'm sorry, and all those respectful like ways for you to say your preferences, right? Like you don't immediately like if you don't like the food, you're gonna spit it out. You know, the same way as when you don't like the person, you obviously just don't tell it straight to his face. I don't like you. Stay away from me. And all those discriminatory acts. I do believe that there is a difference and that um, LGBTQIA individuals should be wary about saying, stating their preference and stating their preference in a respectful way or stating their preferences in a discriminatory way. So I, I believe that we need to be taught those right things, those those right sensibilities, I guess. And I think that with those um, with those actions that we become more sensitive and empathetic to other people, I think that um, we're making those um, sites or places more safe spaces for, for these individuals. Um, and lastly, what was the third one? I forgot. Uh, the last one was about bisexual women having to date someone of the same sex. Or bisexual men. Or bi- bisexual men. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, um, it was interesting because the inspiration that I got, I, I I made the motion last idea which was about fake marriages and how there are um let, let's say bisexual individuals or even gay positive individuals who opt to marry a girl to hide themselves from society that they're gay so that they won't be clocked out or for them to get the benefits of a heterosexual relationship and I do believe that there is a certain pressure right now for individuals to do it even though they don't want to or even though there is a, an alternative decision to just come out and date men I think that um it's difficult in a way that people opt to just choose women not because they love women or because they genuinely like them but because they're afraid that they might be judged if they were to date men or to marry men or to go in a relationship with men. So I think that it's difficult because it becomes the idea of buy now, gay later. So... (laughs) Um, sometimes they just frame themselves, oh, I am bisexual, so that there will be less discrimination upon you. And you would say that, you know, I'd marry and I'd be straight naman din and go into like a, a marriage in the future. But then um, they're not really bisexual. They're actually gay closeted individuals. They try to soft their way of coming out into like transitions. So I think that it damages the bisexual community because we feel that our identity is invalid, that our identity is just, you know, a transition phase for gay closeted individuals. So I think that there's also discrimination of other like people within the community against bisexuals. Regarding the first thing you said about having an obligation to come out or rather not having an obligation to come out until you're ready, um, you mentioned something about like having a really good support system. Now, we also recognize that it's really important to have that support system or to create that. And we as, you know, co-hosts of a podcast, we also want to be part of that support system. But we don't really know how to do that right now because admittedly, we do come from a place of privilege. Um, from For our audience who want to come out that are afraid to, how can we start being that kind of support system for them? I think number one, it's also about not making it a big deal that that person came out. <laughs> like... Seriously, if he came out and he said like that, I'm like, okay, good. I'm proud of you that you came out because there's nothing wrong about coming out. Um, sabi nga namin, uh, why is it that heterosexuals don't have to come out? Like, automatically, you presume that that person is heterosexual. It's like, 
I don't get it. I think that there needs to be, we need to transition to a phase wherein saying your sexuality is basically just saying how old you are or what your name is. Um, It needs to be that wherein people don't really care about your sexuality because there is no tied stigma or there is no tied um, like bad shit about being LGBT. I'm sorry for the cuss, but yeah. So I think that the best way for you to be in a, so to be a supporting friend or to be a really good friend to a person who wants to come out is basically to just have no negative um perceptions about being LGBTQIA and that being LGBTQIA is just you know a fact that is as similar to what your age is or or what or what your name is etc. And being able to also I think um tell that person that you're always there to listen and that you're always there to understand what he's going through and, and be the the empathetic empathetic friend. I also I also wanted to ask about the gay tribes debate or issue as well because you said that there's nothing wrong with having preferences it's just that you have to state them in a respectful way but we once had a debate about gay tribes Nia and I mm-hmm. um met two years ago I think and we said that having gay tribes it's not a constant thing it's constantly evolving so for people who don't know what gay tribes are this is what like twinks or twonks or, yeah, or, or otters jocks, or, yeah. or bears otters yeah. rugged yeah. all those things yeah so yeah. Th- there are sort of descriptors right um but we talked about how it, it's a constantly evolving like these labels don't stay um the same all throughout like There are subcultures like bear isn't just bear. There are also subcultures like polar bears for white bears, um, panda bears for Asian persons. So my question is, isn't categorizing them in those ways like polar bears, panda bears, isn't that kind of racist? Especially as you said, some people kind of say their preferences rather disrespectfully. Isn't this sort of similar to saying that I just don't prefer people from a certain race? I think that it's actually very similar to what heterosexual individuals go through when they go into speed dating and go into like cupid.com, right? Um, which I think that it's particularly unfair because for LGBT individuals to have a really casual date or to be in a situation wherein it's like a heteronormative type of dating. I feel like it's so easy for heteros to date openly, like date their friend from school, um, date their friends from the work, etc. Because there is no stigma tied to it. It, or you know especially if you're a closeted individual and you try to date your co-worker it's hard because what if that co-worker isn't gay pala or something like that so I think that um the reason why in applications tumaas yung ganong tribes thing or that there was a rise in terms of subcategorizing people is mostly because the dating app didn't only just become an application for just meeting people like what heteronormative people uh, like heterosexual people do but I think that it's also evolved into like a sexual app where people look for one night stands. So I think that the categorization is basically them being able to um, self-actualize their fetishes or their sexual fantasies. So I think that it serves a purpose in that way so that we're easily able to find people we can hook up with that that suits our sexual preferences and needs. But I think that um, these types of authors, bears, and etc. wouldn't really matter if we actually advocated for for LGBT individuals to date openly as what heterosexual people would do. Right? Like, it wouldn't matter for you if that person isn't a bear, if he's a really nice friend to you and you really see that person to be part of a relationship with you. But the problem with dating apps is that it's also convoluted 
flirted with a lot of like sexual things. So instead of really dating that person, you end up having a one night stand, then dating that person, then being in a relationship with that person. So I think that it's also because it's not necessarily caused by the LGBT individual LGBT community why we have those tribes, but it's mostly caused by our inability to freely date out in the open. And therefore within those um dating apps, um we look for everything from date to sex to friendships, etc. I'm not sure if I, I answered your question well, but um in terms of the racism and the discrimination part, I do believe that it's it, it's something that's harmful, but it's not something that's being caused by the uh, this this the descriptors or the categorization, I would say. I think that it's probably caused by our inability to know a lot of people within our community and freely date them out in the open. Like obviously, um probably you Kyle, you have a preferences with what women you want inside your head, right? But sometimes it doesn't come into fruition because magically some person that you met in school became your type because she's a really good debater and that she, you had a really good conversation with her, etc. etc. So and therefore, boom, you have a relationship with that friend and naging kayo and, and you were part of a relationship. But in the gay community, it's so difficult to have that person who's also your friend or within part of your social circles, especially if that person is closeted or you yourself um, is closeted. So I think that um, when you go into dating apps, um, aside from looking for a date, you also would want to release the sexual tension because you obviously can't also look for, for sexual things outside the application. So I think that um, to be able to make it easier for people to connect and to look their look look for their preferences since it's it's hard outside, um, they try to put that in those gay, gay apps and, and LGBT. I'm not so sure if it answers the question. But no, yeah. I, I think it answers it perfectly. If anything, it encapsulates how complex like the world and the problems the LGBT face are. Because it's not just the ones we hear about on uh, the news or read about in news articles. There are nuances that each individual has to face, especially in dating, that a lot of people don't seem to talk about enough. Right. Um. Before we end this segment on, sorry, I can I add pala on that? Yeah, go. I think that an additional thing that people can look into when they debate these types of things is also the whole capitalist aspect of dating apps as well. Because these dating apps know that it is difficult for LGBTQI individuals to look for someone that they like, right? And and it's probably much more um intensified by the fact that um costed people can't be in a relationship or look for a relationship outside the app. So what they do to pull people people in to market their their application is that they put in these preferences to make it easier for you to look for a person you can hook up with and easier for you to look up for, to look up people you can date with so i think that the whole idea is also about convenience and i think that the idea of convenience is something that is brought by these applications and it's actually a marketing tool to lure people in to use these applications and i think that that's why like grinder and like blue are like one of the f- most famous like gay dating applications as opposed to like other dating gay dating applications that are that don't have these preferences or don't have these tribes etc so i think that yeah it, it somehow lures people in it's make it easier for them to, to have sex or to date people given the current context that it's so hard for us to date so hard for us to look for sexual partners so basically it's the corporate elite exploiting yes. the insecurities and limitations experienced by members of the lgbt to earn more money exactly exactly <laughs> i mean that's not a new narrative like women yeah. have faced it even men have faced it you know but i feel like right now the market is the LGBT community and they saw it and are capitalizing on it as as ravagely as they can. Happy Pride Month. Happy Anna. Pride Month. I yeah. Guess. And the, the surprising free. thing is these elites are also part of the LGBTQIA community most, most often than not. So I think that it's also sad. Yeah. Hi. 
We hope you're enjoying this episode so far. We'd like to take this opportunity to let you know about an initiative we're having with the Philippine Intercollegiate Debating Championship, or PIDC for short. We believe that debating is for everyone, and given that, we're giving novice debaters and judges a chance to compete in this coming PIDC for free. It's gonna be on us, we're going to be paying for your registration fees, and more. So if you want to apply for the debatable grant, head over to PIDC's Facebook page and apply at bit.ly slash PIDC 2021 debatable. The link is going to be in the description of this episode and all over our social media accounts. The deadline for the application is on June 23. With that, let's go back to the episode. Then let's move on to, I guess, the political aspect of, of it all. Um, because our, our really famous debate before was about the Soji bill, right? And I think up until now, it's still being debated, especially given um, new changes and possible like administrative evolutions. Hopefully, you know, if you're not registered, go register. But anyway, would you say there are unique mental health experiences that cannot be accommodated by more general policies? Like... If this were a debate about the Soji bill versus a general anti-discrimination bill, is there merit to the idea that we should have a mental health law tailored specifically to the LGBT community, separate from general mental health law, or do you think that a general he- mental health law would be enough to encapsulate it all? I think that um, I think that a general a good general mental health bill is sufficient to encapsulate everything. Um, given that a mental health bill should support anyone, regardless of gender, regardless of sex. But I think that in the Philippines. Um, the, our mental health bill or even our, our, our state of public health in the Philippines is awful in a sense that when you talk about insurances like PhilHealth, they only cover uh, a fraction of the sessions that you have. Actually, um, I think in PhilHealth, they only, I think, cover the medical expenses of seeking for a psychiatrist or having a psychiatric consult. But we don't have insurance packages even from the private sector that cover your medications. And I think that, you know, Nina can relate in terms of how expensive medications are it is right and it's so difficult for people who are part of the lgbtqia spectrum who find it difficult to look for a job because they're discriminated in their workplace and at the same time have medical insurance that will cover a lot of their their mental health expenses when it comes to their medications so i think that if there were if we were to create a, a good general mental health bill it, it should be able to cover um mental health packages it should be able to cover free health consultations to psych- or psychiatrists free medications or at least 50/50 coverage of these medications that 50% the state pays and 50% the, the person or the patient pays for but also thirdly i think that when it comes to the anti-discrimination bill this isn't just an issue about acceptance right this isn't just a principled issue of we shouldn't discriminate upon people because um, we are all created equal, etc. and all those principles like that. But there is a pragmatic consequence of us accepting people and not discriminating on them. And that's um, very much linked to the mental health condition of LGBT individuals. So if we were to be in a position wherein we don't discriminate upon people and we accept them freely and we give them jobs no matter what gender they are, no matter what sexuality they are, I think that we're also able to solve a lot of the mental health struggles that they currently face or they currently go through. So I think that number one, we do need a better mental health bill. But second is that we then the discrimination, the anti-discrimination bill and not only advocate for it in a principled way, but advocate for it in terms of its pragmatic consequences if we do accept individuals who are part of the LGBTQIA spectrum. So in a way, it's kind of all interrelated, right? Like fighting discrimination against LGBT um, individuals would strengthen policies on um, mental health 
protection and vice versa. So with all those things in consideration, is there any truth to the idea that the Philippines is one of the friendliest places in the world for members of the LGBT? I would say yes and I would say no as well. Like probably yes to a certain extent we are in terms of even though we are a very conservative country, um, given that we're the highest number of like Catholics in, in Asia, um, we're still somehow open to the idea that there are family members who identify as LGBTQIA and we don't really, we don't see much of probably individuals being kicked out of the house because we value family um, as opposed to other places where wherein they probably like kick out these individuals from their houses or even hurt them physically. Um, in Indonesia, for example, in one of their states that do impose the Sharia law, when you're caught having homosexual sex or having homosexual relationships, you're actually beaten in public. Um, so I think that in comparison probably to these other very conservative places in other ASEAN states, such as in Indonesia, in Malaysia, and Brunei, in Brunei most especially, because I think it's punishable by death or something like that. Um, I think that we're definitely one of the more liberal countries within our vicinity when it comes to accepting LGBTQIA individuals. Um, and actually, fun fact though, we're the first country in Asia to hold the Pride March. So I think that somehow we are accepting that we have the community with us in the Philippines, but in terms of being able to provide specific needs to the community, as well as advocating for the rights. I think that dun tayo nagkukulang and or that's where we're lacking and that's why we feel as if we do really need to make it much more friendlier. I think that it's probably a little bit okay now compared to before but I think there's still much more room for us to be the friendliest place for LGBT individuals um, like probably be more like Taiwan or even be better than Taiwan in the future. As individuals, what do you think we can do to help like propel our status as one of the friendliest places for members of the LGBT? Like what can we do besides advocating for more policies and expecting structural change? Because right now, right, you seem to be implying that given how complex the issue is, it needs to be a rather top-down approach. But if that wasn't an option, what can we do as individuals to help alleviate some of the problems at the very least? I think it needs to come from our communities. First, I think it should come from the family. I think we should have more supportive parents for the their children that no matter what their gender what their sexuality is they should accept them and love them i think that love within the family is able to give much more mental health support for these individuals as well as courage for them to stand up to any of the challenges that they face in the future i think that a lot of the strong people i know from the community have families that support them in whatever endeavor they do be it like them being a drag queen or them being a transgender individual i think that um number one we really do need to um have a safe space within their families have more supportive parents but I think that in order for us to reach there we need to have more education more education for these parents to know what it means to be part of the LGBTQIA spectrum because I do believe that parents who discriminate upon their children or who hurt their children don't do it on purpose they don't want to hurt their children because um, or they, they don't do it because they don't love these children they do love these children but the reason why they're doing it is probably because they don't know enough right so I think that we need to probably have more education um, from probably DSWD, from DepEd, um, to teach these parents. But I think that we also need to revamp our educational curriculum um, to be able to teach what sexuality is, to be able to teach what gender is. Because like even in the preschool books in 
the grade school books, we see it na parang anong trabaho ng um, nurse? Um, sinong nagtatrabaho sa nurse? Boy, girl, or both? Thus, you often would see like a lot of children say girl and, and, and all of these like preconceived stereotypes about people and their sexuality and their gender. So I do believe that we need to put an end to all of those things and try to have a more inclusive educational system that encompasses different types of sexualities and gender. Um, and, and that's how you educate people who, are, who may be future parents or who are already parents or future children who will or future heterosexual children who will interact with LGBTQIA individuals. Actually, since you're talking about young nurse and like um, boy, girl, or both and people say girl, I was thinking like what if we make like a quiz for children and go like mm, profession, boy, girl, both. This profession, boy, girl, both. And then it's just a trick question all the time because the answer is always both. Always both. <laughs> always both. That's the correct. It's not a trick question. Like it's a, It's the correct. It's answer. the correct answer. Yeah. 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 But actually um since you were talking about families, I remember there are lots of conservative families. My family I think is less conservative um but still more conservative than I would personally like. But still I remember them saying that if your child comes out gay um or lesbian um you do know that you wouldn't be able to change that. So um that actually brings to my mind a common debate about whether being LGBT is a choice or if it's something that you are born with. I mean, in when I started debating in um, 2010, it was quite a popular motion, and there were lots of variations on it. Like I even debated one time about like stopping all research in finding a gay dar or a gay gene, shit like that. What are your thoughts on um, this sort of debate, like on the choice versus born this way sort of thing? I think that whether or not it was choice or something that you didn't have a choice to be born into, I think that people should just respect other people based on what they're doing in their lives. Because if it's not damaging to other individuals, why would you force people to choose another option instead? Like for example, if I want to choose a corn on a cob versus like a shredded corn with butter and cheese, and you say, oh, it's more convenient to eat the shredded corn, like it shouldn't matter if I choose the corn in a cup because it won't damage you anyway and it's the same way like if I want to next day be um, identifying myself as a trans individual like non, non-binary non I don't think that my my decision would affect you or even if I was inborn into this particular um, um sexuality or, or gender I don't think that it, it should be able to affect you so <laughs> I think that in that particular instance um even if you're born into it or even when you have a choice I don't think that it should matter um and that we should respect whatever choices people make because it doesn't damage you anyway like it doesn't affect you as an individual so why should you be able to force or coerce people to, to choose i think that's my, my stance but there are some um parents more conservative parents who go like well actually this does affect me i have an interest in making sure that i have a grandchild shit like that um, how would you respond to this? I think that if you do really want to have grandchildren, there are a lot of already alternative options you could take um, for have like an artificial insemination. Or even if you're not rich, you know it will become cheaper in the future. Like probably now, it's it's probably expensive because we, we don't have much researches or innovations about it. But in the future, when it's already innovated, probably you could have all of those things. But even if fine, let's say at worst comes to worst, it's really a difficult thing for parents and people are really affected by your choices. I think that number one, you may 
be born into it, but rather it's just very difficult for you to discern it given a lot of societal um, pressures that you experience as an individual. Like, for example, conforming to different things. And that's why we have people who, who probably come out late or probably discover things very much late in their adulthood or in their life. So I think that it may it may be something that is inborn within people and it's just something that they, they it seems as if it's something that just comes out as a choice because um, most often than not, the things that we have in our head is something that's not yet activated because of a lot of societal or environmental pressure. But again, I think that it's also important for us to, in, in my opinion, to take a note about the gene as well to probably give us a foresight in terms of what we can do to our future children who may be born into this world. So for example, you as a parent, you're part of a very conservative society that probably kills babies because of the, the gender or the sexuality they're born into. Um, if you do see that there's a gene in your offspring and you have that gene, then you can create a better decision for that child and not make him be born into a suckish world that is hell for that child. So I think that that's a, a much more ethical decision in my opinion. But also secondly, even in a conservative setup wherein that boy or child can be born properly, I think that you being able to to know what gene your child has makes you prepare as a parent what type of accommodations you can do in the future. So for example, if that person, that male person is going to be born as a trans woman in the future, at least you're able to prepare yourself as a parent, prepare those people around you such as relatives to condition them to say that, oh, that person is going to come out in, in the future as a trans woman and we need to be able to support that child or help that child. But in the worst case wherein, you know, people will say that, what if hindi niya pinanganak yung bata na yon? And what if ayaw niya dun sa bata na yon? And palaglag niya na lang si trans baby then I think that it's still the best decision because technically you didn't want a person who who was LGBT and therefore if you still if you were in a world wherein you didn't know and pinilit mo yung mapanganak yung bata na yun then or you force that child into existence then I think that you that child would still be in a hellish situation regardless of whether it's conservative or liberal because you as a parent don't, doesn't want a child that's part of the LGBTQIA well that's my opinion how, that's how I would debate it if I were to say that you know there is a gene and we can like really know about it yeah <laughs> yeah this is a common debate as well about children who wish to transition really early I remember a previous conversation we had before recording about the DSM-5 and about gender dysphoria and how, you know, recently it was removed from it. Can you explain to us what the DSM-5 is and why it matters, what is and isn't in it? So I think the uh, first is the DSM-5 is the Diagnostic Statistics Manual 5. It's already in its fifth iteration. And it's basically the Bible of all psychologists and psychiatrists when it's when it comes to knowing about mental health conditions. Um, many different mental health conditions and there are certain things and nuances um, na part that is in DSM-5 that's only applicable to people in the LGBTQIA spectrum and one of this is gender dysphoria so I think that when it comes to those things when it's written in medical jargons and medical journals I think that one thing you can try to imply from that is that somehow these are things that are biological in nature and probably can be genetic in nature so I think there's that one thing that if you were to say that gender dysphoria is something Thing that's biological like within your body I think you can also conclude that somehow it might also be genetic and that's why there is really a push for us to um, study the genetics within like gender dysphoria and all of these other gender related conditions 
Um, but also thirdly, there's also this negative um, preconception about gender dysphoria being treated as a social stigma alongside with you being as a trans individual. So I think that there's also the idea na oh you're crazy or you're balio and we need to like probably give you a lot of special treatment or we should go away from you and that you're you're not part of the community etc. But I think that it's also just brought about by bad individuals um, being discriminatory towards mental health conditions. And I think that we don't want that. So I, I, so I feel like even if gender dysphoria was to still be placed in DSM-5, I don't think that it should be a worry for, for trans individuals that they will be called as a person having gender dysphoria because it might be able to help them know more about themselves. But also I think that there needs to be a more in-depth discussion of what gender dysphoria is for a lot of trans individuals because because I feel that a lot of trans individuals think that if they feel that they're trans, automatically they have gender dysphoria, which I think is false. Um, not all trans individuals have gender dysphoria. Um, those people who experience gender dysphoria are those people who um feel a lot of anxiety and depression because they're unable to change their bodies. But if they're freely able to change their bodies and able to transition as a trans individual, I don't think that they're really experiencing gender dysphoria or they're part of that ESM5 um condition or classification. Yeah. Actually, on that note, because you said that a, a lot of people, even trans individuals, might not know what gender dysphoria is. For the rest, for, for everyone who doesn't know what gender dysphoria is, how would you explain to them? Because we are not like the best people um, to, to explain um, what that would mean, especially since it's, a, as you said, a scientific term and neither of us are in the sciences, yep. <laughs> unless you would consider economics to be a science, which I don't. <laughs> well, it, well, it kind of is. There's, there's a lot of math in that. But um, for all people who don't know what gender dysphoria is, actually gender dysphoria is the distress a person feels due to the mismatch between the gender identity and what sex they were assigned at birth. So if you feel that you are in, in a very intense type of distress that you want to probably, that you have a lot of suicidal thoughts, that you feel a lot of anxiety within yourself, or you have a lot of these negative emotions, then you do have gender dysphoria. But if you freely opt to become a trans individual, even if there is no distress, then that is um, a trans individual without gender dysphoria. So there would be a lot of um, trans individuals who would want to be a trans individual not because they feel that discomfort but just because they want to or they choose to become um, a, a different gender altogether or a different person altogether. Yeah. So it's not necessarily the case where you can only be a valid transgender if you experience gender dysphoria. And I remember yes. like ContraPoints was saying was calling them transgenders. Well, no, she, they, they said it sarcastically but like apparently this was the broad um, misconception behind what um, it means to be trans so I guess what can so I guess now I can ask what can we do as individuals or us using our platform to combat that misconception about what it means to be trans so versus um, the requirement quote-unquote of having gender dysphoria first I think the idea of being a trans individual it's not just being a trans man or a trans woman there's also um, non-binary so for example this particular day I feel like I'm a man or next day I feel like I'm a woman even though you don't feel really distressed or really you don't have that emotion that coerces you to become like a different gender altogether I think that that's valid um, and you don't have to go to gender dysphoria to necessarily feel like you want to be a man for that 
particular day or you feel feminine for that particular day. You just want to. You just feel that you're more ha- like you're happier that way. Like if you feel happier because of your decision, because of your uh, decision to um let's say transition to become a different gender altogether, then I don't think that that's gender dysphoria. But if you're feeling like really intense emotional sadness because of what you're experiencing in terms of your gender identity and that the only reason for you to be able to free yourself from a lot of these negative emotions is to transition, then that's gender dysphoria. So I think that um our goal as individuals here is to make a society wherein people can become happier or can, uh, aside from that, can free themselves away from their negative emotions and their sadness and their their, their depression, all these mental health conditions. So there's, there's two things, right? One, allow people to become happier even though they might not be sad currently, but our ability to like ma- make themselves actualize into a, like, a better place, I think that's one. Then the second one is in terms of gender dysphoria, those people like experiencing depression, if they really have these negative emotions, then we should accept them and allow them to be able to transition. I think the issue when it comes to gender dysphoria and that the idea that you need to have a gender dysphoria for you to be able to um, be identified as a trans individual, I think it's a formality only when it comes to like medical procedures um, and in terms of the medical community in general because a psychiatrist won't recommend you to a endocrinologist to take in these supplements and hormone um, hormone hormonal pills if you do not experience gender dysphoria because there are a lot of risks tied to these medications that these trans individuals take. So I think that I think that's one of the issues that you have to go into a psychiatrist and tell that psychiatrist that I have gender dysphoria just so you're able to access all of these medications from your endocrinologist and other health experts. And I think that that's one of the barriers for a lot of trans individuals to transition and come out because they have to come into terms and come out to their psychiatrist as a person experiencing mental health condition even though they don't really experience that gender dysphoria. I think that's one of the difficult things to like say that you're that you have mental health issues even though you do not have as well as because you're afraid of the negative stigma that that mental health condition brings about towards your identity yeah thank you so much nori i I think that was a very insightful discussion to end this episode we know that many of our listeners are lgbt or are struggling with mental illness or struggling with both or are still trying to identify themselves and learn more about themselves what would you tell these people now that you have the floor and for people who might be listening to this episode for a sort of solace or for a sort of guidance what can you do to help or what can you say to sort of ease their minds I think number one, um, I'm really proud of the co- the Philippine debating community right now in terms of how we evolved in terms of our equity policies, um, in terms of our gender policies of asking for preferred pronouns, for being more sensitive with how we um, communicate with other people. And I think that, that those are those are things and trends that we need to be able to continue. But I think second is in terms of um, within debates, probably we can have like a special channel or room in Discord that can deal with mental health struggles within like in between rounds that people face. Um, especially when they're faced with a lot of equity violation, uh, when they are like discriminated upon and there was an equity violation that takes place. I think that we should also have like um, at least a psychologist or a mental health professional within our debate tournaments to like give mental first aid to individuals um, that are in that type of distress within tournaments. I think that's what like, 
like one concrete thing that we can do um in in live tournaments that we have right now but i think second is also in terms of um being able to talk about it freely in the open and not just box ourselves up in our, our echo chambers in debate because i feel like a lot of our discussions are just you know placed out within tournament or, or just placed within tournaments but we're unable to place out these advocacies when it comes to real life so i think that we need to be able to, to do that um as well that we need to be able to talk about lgbt discussions and the motions that we have outside the tournaments i think um this podcast does that because you know your podcast um nina nina's and kyle's podcast doesn't just go to like debaters in general but goes to everyone who wants to learn about many different issues and i think that um outspoken also does that when it comes to being able to advocate a lot of things aside from just debate education i think outspoken also does um a lot of education to other individuals who would want to know more about different issues and not just you know specifically to debate but i think thirdly um if they are in some mental distress or they are currently experiencing like difficulties they could always contact me um i could provide for some free psychosocial support whenever i can um currently i am a certified with the cognitive behavioral therapy um and i can help um other individuals who are facing many mental health conditions um actually just to give like a short background on that i personally experienced in my life having no one to talk to about my condition because i was afraid because of what other people might think of me because i was always like this good achiever in in high school in college i was i was relatively well as well and i was scared of what will people think of me when they find find out that i have bipolar disorder and that i'm a sham that I've been only doing well because of my mania, but not really because of me as a great person, you know? So I was afraid of people's judgment toward me, but I realized that I have to let it go and that I have to use all of the things within my arsenal to help myself. And that's wherein I tried to dabble and learn about cognitive behavioral therapy and I tried to certify myself in that um, through like an online platform. And when I was able to certify myself, I promised to myself that I want, I should be better, but I also promised to myself that I don't want any want to experience the same struggle that I have to experience that I have to fight my mental health condition alone without anyone because back then I didn't have anyone because my family was also in denial of it or there was a difficulty accepting or com- coming into terms of what my diagnosis is so I think that if anyone of you out there who's listening in this podcast who feels alone who doesn't know how to um, address their mental health conditions they could always approach me um, they could contact me through Facebook Nori Dekito Matsuzaki or contact me through IG at Nori Dekito um and i could you know spend my time um doing therapy to those people who are really in need um i think those things like initiatives from really good people like i i've, I've come to know a lot of people within my circle of friends as well who's, who's also providing for free mental health support and you know we're always just a click away and also uh, i'd like to plug plug in also outspoken you can check out their facebook page it's a, a a page that's dedicated for debate education most especially to those debaters or individuals who don't have access to debating materials or debating education or don't have any debate coaches in their respective high schools or institutions. Thank you so much again, Nori, for Thank agreeing you. to be part of this episode. Um, so <laughs> I think that's it for this episode. Um, we'll see you in the next one. Um, so again, every single episode we're going to be having this Pride Month is going to be written by or we're going to record them with members of the LGBT community. So we're very excited for that. We'll see you in the next one. Bye-bye. Bye.